Morning, church family. So good to be with you all. Two things before I get to the message. First, one of my great joys is getting to announce new babies. On weekends that I'm preaching, if there's a new baby to be announced, I just take it from whoever's doing announcements so that I get to do it. So uh, sorry, not sorry, Becky and Randy. Um, but congratulations to JL and Treasure Lowe on the birth of their first child, Ariana. She was born this past Sunday, March 6th, at 1.20 in the morning, 6 pounds, 10 ounces, and look how cute she is. The recent baby boom at this church has made me so happy. Second, uh, we are just five weeks from Easter weekend, and the staff has been five, five weeks. Uh, the staff has been working really hard to plan a ton of events for the Easter season. And it kicks off on Sunday evening, March 27th, so the last Sunday of the month in the evening at 6 p.m. here in the church with an Easter worship night. So what better way to kick off the season than worshiping God together in song? And if you enjoy worshiping through song, you are going to love this. Uh, after a three-year hiatus, we are bringing back a choir for Easter. Uh, yes. If you can sing, or even if you can't, but you just want to be part of bringing the house down this Easter, uh, the first rehearsal is Wednesday evening, March 23rd at 6.30 here at the church. So if you have any questions about the worship night or the choir, you can contact Pastor Mark. Uh, I could not be more excited about the return of the choir. And the choir and the worship night, they are just a part of the many things that we have planned for Easter, we're going to be releasing a full schedule online uh, and through the weekly newsletter next week. Um, but we can't wait to celebrate the resurrection with you this season. So family, listen, 10 days ago, I had the chance to cross off something on my bucket list. And a friend and I flew down to Disneyland and we, I finally had the chance to visit Galaxy's Edge. And for those who don't know, so Galaxy's Edge is the Star Wars uh, section of Disneyland. And everyone who knows me knows what an enormous Star Wars fan that I am. And so you can only imagine what my reaction was. Guys, it was the best day ever. It was the best day ever. Now, I know what you're saying. You're going to remind me of my wedding day and the birth of my children, the day I got saved. And for sure, those are the most significant and important days of my life. But this was the best day ever. This... So we're, we're just walking to that area. We go through this kind of like an underpass, and we come out of the tunnel. And this is the first thing I see. And, and it stopped me in my tracks as I see this like live stormtrooper who's patrolling the wall. And I mean, that's the start of my day, and it was already amazing. And then we go into the park, and we round this corner. And I got to see the Millennium Falcon, and oh my goodness. I'm not too proud to admit that I cried at the sight of this. That is not hyperbole. Later in the day, I got to see Chewbacca and R2-D2 and more tears. All day long, I felt like I was eight years old. We spent... 12 hours in Galaxy's Edge. It's not that big, but we spent 12 hours in Galaxy's Edge, and I would have gladly spent another 120 hours. From the rides, to the food, to the sound, like every part of that experience 
was amazing. And I was having such a strong emotional response to everything that I saw that at one point in the afternoon, I turned to my traveling companion and said, I think today is revealing some idols in my heart. <laughs> this weekend, we continue our sermon series, Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind, a verse-by-verse -verse look through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be teaching and studying together Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. Now, last week, Pastor David noted that Mark chapter 10 essentially consists of three large sections of text that all talk about our heart and our heart attitude. And while I made that statement about revealing idols in my heart as a joke, the truth is that everything that we say and do and feel, everything that we say and do and feel speaks to what's in our hearts, what brings us to tears, what brings us great joy, what we have strong emotional responses to, where we sp spend our time and energy and resources, right? Everything that we say and do and feel speaks to what's in our hearts. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. And what is in our hearts ought to align with kingdom values. And so in our verses today, we're going to learn four things about heart attitudes in the kingdom of God. And so our verses today break out into two scenes, a scene with, some te with Jesus teaching and some children being brought to him, and then a scene involving a rich ruler. And we're going to look at each of these in turn. And this is what the Bible says. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child shall not enter it. And then he took him in his, in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. So our verses today are covered here in Mark chapter 10, but they're also covered in Matthew chapter 19 and Luke chapter 18. And the three gospels highlight small different details. And so trying to get a full understanding of what's going on in these scenes requires us to compare and contrast across the three gospels. And it's a good reminder for us that the best resource for understanding the Bible is the Bible, right? Now, commentaries and study Bibles, they're very useful and certainly helpful. But the best resource, we should always look to the Bible to study the Bible. Now, Pastor David noted last week that we're in the roughly last few months of Jesus's earthly ministry. And Jesus spent much of that remaining time while he's on earth, increasing the pace of his teaching. Right? He's discipling his followers as best as he can with the time that he has left on earth. And so after teaching on divorce and marriage, he's in a house and he's teaching on other topics. And the Bible says that some parents brought children to him. Now, the Greek word used for children in verse 13 implies really, long, really young children, little child, essentially. And all three Gospels are consistent in using wording that implies a very young child. Luke's account goes even further and says this. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. I think infant is more consistent with the later detail that Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them. So they were pretty small. And so if we are thinking in this scene that parents brought like six and seven years year olds to, to Jesus, no, we're, you know, lower that age quite a bit. 
And that's going to help us understand better why the disciples had the reaction that they did. So again, Jesus, he's actively teaching. And the people are moving past the disciples to bring to Jesus an infant or a baby. Now, look, if you're in the middle of something and someone brings you like a six-year-old, well, that six-year-old's pretty self-sufficient, right? They could stand there on their own. They can sit at your feet. A six-year-old doesn't require that much of an active engagement. And some of your parents are saying, well, you don't know my six-year-old. <laughs> but it's very different when someone brings you a baby, hands you an infant. I mean, you, you kind of have to hold on to it and engage with them. One time when my, uh, my wife and I were first-time parents with our daughter Angie, and one of my friends from college, my friend Aaron, he came to visit and see the new baby. And apparently he had never held a baby before. So he, he sits down on the couch, and we bundle up Angie, and we bring Angie over to Aaron and just lay Angie on his lap. And then my wife and I watched with confusion as Aaron just sat there while Angie just sort of slowly slid off his lap towards the ground. <laughs> Didn't even bother engaging. Babies require attention. And so imagine the scene, right? You're a follower of Jesus, trying to soak up whatever wisdom he's trying to impart to you. And how irritated would you be if people are handing infants to Jesus? Or taking his attention away from imparting wisdom to take care of these babies. The disciples were also likely concerned that this was a huge imposition on Jesus. And remember, at that time in that culture, children, especially young children, were not valued. And so bringing children to Jesus would have been considered an imposition. And so the disciples, they just rebuked the parents that were doing this to Jesus. And what was Jesus' response to that? But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, No, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such, to such belongs the kingdom of God. The Bible says he was indignant. He was indignant. Now, the Greek word for indignant is the word anagateo. And that word combines two smaller words, the word agon, meaning much, and the word octeo, which is a form of the word octos, meaning grief or pain. And so the word indignant is right to describe how Jesus is feeling, but more literally, he feels much pain. Right? He's watching his disciples' reaction to this, and he's grieved by it. It's paining Jesus to see his disciples rebuking these parents. Why? Is it because Jesus just loved babies? I mean, fact about me, I love little babies. I could hold infants all day long. And if you're listening right now, if you brought me a baby to the stage, I would preach this message holding a baby. Be perfectly fine with that. Is that what's going on here? Jesus just loves babies and wants babies brought to him, and now the disciples are stopping that, so he's upset at that? I don't think so. There's a detail included in Matthew 19 that I think helps shed a little light on Jesus' response. Matthew says, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. Mark and Luke just say the parents wanted Jesus to touch the babies, but Matthew includes this detail that what they actually wanted was for Jesus to lay hands and pray over them. They were seeking Jesus' blessing. That's why at the end of the scene it says Jesus took the babies up in his arms and blessed them. Because that's what the parents wanted, and he gave them what they needed. You see, the parents came to Jesus just like every other person who had ever interrupted his teaching, because they needed him. 
Last spring, we studied Mark chapter 2, and there's this scene there. Jesus is teaching in a house, and people start taking the roof off, and they lower this paralyzed man down into the house, interrupted Jesus' teaching, because they needed Jesus to heal them. Wherever Jesus went, people routinely interrupted his teaching when they needed him. Now, at this point in the disciples' ministries, they've been following Jesus for nearly three years. And how had they not understood by then that when people needed Jesus' attention and healing, they were never an interruption? In fact, healing people was one of the reasons Jesus came to earth. And this is what pained Jesus, that his disciples still hadn't understood that fact still didn't understand his servant heart, still didn't understand that Jesus was here for people. Let's go back to that Mark verse. It says Jesus was indignant, and then he said this, No, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, belongs the kingdom. There's an interesting thing to note about the phrase, for to such belongs the kingdom. The word used for belongs is the word I me, which means is, not belong. It means is. And so a more literal translation would be, let the little children come to me for, for to such is the kingdom of God. Now, belongs to the kingdom, is the kingdom, both imply the same thing. And the meaning is clear, that people are not an interruption to kingdom work. No, kingdom work is for people. That is, the kingdom of God exists for people to come to Jesus. The kingdom exists for people to come to Jesus. And this is a good reminder for us, for those of us in ministry, right? That ministry is for people. Now, we talk about the gospel often. And the gospel is the message that sin broke the relationship between us and a holy God. And Jesus came to restore that broken relationship through his death and resurrection. That's the gospel. Redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. The Bible says, for the Son of Man came came to earth to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to earth with the specific purpose of redemption and reconciliation and restoration. He came to serve. He came to heal. He came for people. And so people coming to Jesus, that's never an interruption. It's the very purpose of the kingdom. And because the purpose of the kingdom is people, well, no wonder Jesus was pained. He was indignant that the disciples rebuked those parents coming to Jesus. And so Jesus welcomed those parents, welcomed those infants, held those babies as they brought them to him. And as Jesus held those infants He used them to make our first point about kingdom heart attitudes. You and I should have completely dependent hearts. We should have completely dependent hearts. Followers of Jesus are to completely depend on Jesus for everything. Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, like this child, shall not enter it. But he's holding an infant in his arms as he says this, and he tells his followers, if you don't receive the kingdom like this little one, you will not enter it. Now, what do we know about infants? Well, they can't feed themselves. They can't just go open the pantry and then go find something and feed themselves. 
They really can't even travel from one location to another. It's months before they learn to crawl. They can't dress themselves. They can't plan a trip. And the list of things that an infant cannot do is long. And it means they're dependent on other people for everything. And Jesus is holding an infant. He says, we're to receive the kingdom like this. Completely dependent. And completely dependent not on other people, but completely dependent on God, on him. And that is easier to say than to do. There are few, if any, cultures like American culture where a central part of the cultural identity is personal independence. We're taught to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, taught to look out for number one. We're taught to be self-reliant. We're taught that submission and dependence are signs of weakness. And this cultural teaching is exacerbated by our sinful hearts. That's what our hearts are telling us as well. Remember, all sin is essentially rebellion against a holy God. Our sin natures are already wired to rebel against depending on anybody. Now listen, there are many areas in our lives where self-determination and self-reliance and an ability to act independently, those are good and noble things. But when you combine the culture's focus on personal independence with our own sin natures bent towards rebellion... Well, in situations where dependence is required, it becomes a difficult thing. In our marriages, in our families, in our jobs, and so on. And this tension over dependence and independence is especially problematic in our faith. Because we're called to wholly depend on God like sheep to a shepherd. And yet how strongly does our rebellious flesh pull us away from dependence? I'm going to wrestle with that tension. And so what does that look like in practice? Well, here's an example. We're to be completely dependent on Jesus to fill our need to be loved. We're to rely on him to affirm our need to be loved. And yet in this world, our default is to fill our need to be loved through other people. I've heard so many testimonies of people who went in and out of relationships, many of them bad, because they depended on other people to meet that need. But a wholly dependent faith, well, that finds that affirmation of being loved only in Jesus. A few years ago, uh, after years of being in bad relationships, my, one of my sisters-in-law committed a year to what she called dating Jesus. Refused to date anyone else, was just focused on her relationship with God to fulfill her emotional and relational needs. And it was only after getting to a healthy place in that, that, that after that year of committing to the Lord, that the Lord placed her in her current relationship with her current husband. Another example of that is complete dependence on God in how we grieve. But I've heard many stories of people who suffered the loss of a loved one or suffered some sort of loss, and they responded to that loss by turning to alcohol or drugs or sex to numb their pain. Right? They chose to fill that void in their heart with something of the world. In contrast, in the last year alone, I talked to three people grieving recent losses who were at church the very week of their loss. And when I asked them why they were at church so soon, all three responded, well, where else would I rather be? Because they were completely dependent on Christ to heal their hurts and comfort their hearts. And yes, Jesus is going to use his people to be part of that healing process, but ultimately the dependence is on Christ for that. 
These are just two examples of what it means to completely depend on God for everything that we need. And we're to do that in every area of our lives, in our relationships, in our suffering, in our finances, in our parenting, in our schooling, in our careers, in all of it. That's what a kingdom mindset looks like. And that kind of kingdom heart attitude, it pleases God. Christian author Lisa Turkhurst put it this way. It's not my perfect performance that captures God's attention. It's my complete dependence on him that he notices. Complete dependence on him. Jesus used an analogy that he's the vine and we're the branches. And when we're wholly dependent on the vine, on Jesus, we'll flourish. And if we don't, nothing. The Bible says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. A kingdom heart attitude is one of complete dependence on God. And so Jesus told his disciples to receive the kingdom like an infant. And it takes us to our second scene, which we're going to look at two in two different parts. In the first part, the Bible says this. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Well, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man said to him, Well, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, well, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. And then come follow me. And disheartened by this, by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The word of the Lord. Verse 17 tells, Jesus, tells us that Jesus, he ended his teaching session in this village. And he's ready to move on to another location. And as he's departing this village, this man comes up to him. Now, just, Mark just says a man, but Luke 18 refers to the man as a ruler. So it's someone with power and authority. And even though this was someone with power, someone used to being in charge, verse 17 tells us this man approached Jesus with great humility. Right? He kneels before Jesus. He shows, he goes to his knees in the sign of submission and respect. And this man of authority, he recognizes that Jesus has more authority than him. And this ruler has an important question for Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's obvious this is a religious man. This is a man who'd been living his life according to what he'd been taught. He's trying to do his best. And he wants confirmation from Jesus. Lord, is, is what I'm doing, is that going to lead to eternal life? Now note how this ruler addressed Jesus. He calls Jesus good teacher. Now that title doesn't mean anything to us. It just seems like a general compliment, right? When I taught middle school math in Boston, some of my students and parents, they told me I was a good teacher. I mean, there are teachers here today that, you know, they all have those examples in their lifetime. In our culture, we have a lot of good teachers. But in that culture, at that time, that was an uncommon address. 
Professor Thomas Constable noted this. Such a form of address, i.e. good teacher, would be very rare in the Judaism of Jesus' time. Because in general, the Jewish view was that God alone may be fitly described as good. And this is why Jesus reacted the way that he did and asked, well, why do you call me good? Because there's only one who is good, meaning God. Now, you and I know that Jesus is God. And therefore, this title, good teacher, was in fact an appropriate title for Jesus. So why did he respond in the way that he did? I think Jesus' response was actually the first test of this ruler's heart. Essentially, Jesus wanted the man to be intentional with his words. Why call him good? Was this ruler calling Jesus good teacher because he believed that Jesus was good at teaching, good at imparting wisdom? Was this ruler using the term good teacher to just flatter Jesus? Or was this man, did this man believe in his heart that only God is good and he called Jesus good because he believed that Jesus was God? Which of those three things? And the reason I think this is a test is, and one that the, the ruler failed, is because of his second time addressing Jesus in verse 20. He says this, And he, the man, said to him, Well, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. In his response, he called him teacher. Remove the word good. Jesus challenged the man to be intentional with his words, words that reflected his heart, told him not to casually use the term good unless he meant it. And the man stopped using the term. Test failed. Now, Jesus doesn't dwell on this man's failure. Instead, Jesus answered the man's question about how to inherit eternal life, how to be part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. In all three gospel accounts, Jesus' response to the man's honest and earnest question was to point him back to the Mosaic law. Why? Well, because before the death and resurrection of Christ, the only way to be declared righteous is if you could perfectly fulfill every single detail of every single law in the Mosaic law. That's how to be righteous. You ever wondered why the Bible spends so much time on every single law handed down to Moses? Because it's to illustrate and remind us of how impossible it is for any of us to be righteous on our own merit. Impossible for us to perfectly fulfill every detail of every law. The Mosaic law tells us that what God's standard of holiness is, it's high, it's very high. And that impossibly high standard is what Jesus pointed this man's to. You want to know how to be righteous? This impossibly high standard. Now the man's response is, well, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. You have to admire this man's swagger and confidence. Jesus says that that's an impossibly high standard, and, and the man's like, that standard? Yeah, I got that. And I love Jesus' response to his response. The Bible says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus didn't rebuke the man, tell him how wrong he was. Tell him how every word in that sentence he just said was wrong. Didn't knock him for his swagger. Didn't say, you know, I know everything. I know that you haven't filled every single law since your youth. 
loved him. Loved him in the imperfection of his faith. And it's out of that love for him that Jesus gives him one more test. And in that test, we learn another important aspect of kingdom heart attitudes, and it's this. We should put Jesus first in our hearts. Jesus is first in our hearts. That is, Jesus ought to be the highest priority in our hearts and our lives, and nothing should compete with him for our attention or our affection. Nothing. Mark records that Jesus' words is one thing you lack, just one thing. Matthew's version says this, you know, if you really want to be perfect, if you would be perfect, then go sell what you possess and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. One thing that you lack. One thing keeping you from perfection. Now, Jesus tells him three things, though. Sell, give, and follow. But he says one thing you lack. He gives him three verbs, but it's that third one, follow me, that's most important. Jesus challenged the man, sell all you have, give to the poor, follow me. And only if the man took care of that first two, sold and gave, could he wholeheartedly do the third, follow. Essentially, Jesus' challenge to the man was, follow me and get rid of any hindrance or obstacle to doing that wholeheartedly. In a man's case, case, it was his wealth and his possessions. Jesus' call to sell everything he had and give to the poor was essentially the same challenge he had in challenging the term good teacher. Oh, you call me good? Mean it. Oh, you want to put God first in your life? Mean it. And this is the call and challenge to anyone who would follow Jesus. That Jesus is our highest and first priority in our hearts and our lives. And we need to remove every competing priority that hinders our ability to do that. Anything that competes with Jesus as a priority in our hearts is what we call an idol. And you can generally identify any idols in your life by examining where you place your time, your attention, and your resources. Time, attention, and resources, those help identify idols. In the case of this rich ruler, the idol in his heart was his possessions. Right? Jesus saw his heart, saw that he honestly desired to follow God. But he also saw his heart and saw that he also loved his possessions too much. And so Jesus challenged this idol in his heart. And Jesus would do the same to us. What are our idols? What are our our idols? What are the things in our lives that are hindrances from us fully placing Jesus first in our heart and life? If you and I knelt before Jesus, what would Jesus challenge us with? You know, if you would be perfect, break up with your girlfriend or boyfriend and find your emotional fulfillment in me alone and follow me. If you would be perfect, well, then quit your successful career. Place your identity in me and not your professional accomplishments and follow me. If you would be perfect, set aside your physical comfort and serve in that ministry that makes you uncomfortable and follow me. If you would be perfect, stop playing video games and spend that time reading the word of God and follow me. If you would be perfect, 
then have a heart that is as, as, as excited as being at church as you are at Galaxy's Edge and follow me. That one was for me. What are our idols? If we're kingdom-minded, we must put Jesus first in our hearts and him alone. And just like the man failed the good teacher test, he fails the follow me test. The Bible says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Failed the test. What am I sad? Greek word for sorrowful can also be translated grieving. Man went away grieving this challenge that Jesus had put in front of him. And again, the problem wasn't that he had a lot of stuff. The problem was that he valued that stuff too highly. Jesus was not making a, a statement about wealth. Not at that moment, but he was about to. Takes us to our last section. The Bible says this. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, No children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, well, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, well, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, he watched this rich ruler walk away sad. And Jesus just muses aloud in observation that people with wealth, they're going to face that same struggle. Right? That the comforts and lifestyle that wealth affords, they're going to be a significant temptation on people. The Bible says the disciples responded with amazement. Now, Jesus senses something in their response. He knows their hearts, and he sees that they're holding a, a, a value and belief about wealth that doesn't align with kingdom values about wealth. And so he challenges, he pushes their heart a little bit further. He says, actually, it's not difficult. It's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That metaphor of a camel going through the eye of a needle was a Jewish idiom that means an impossibility. And disciples hear that in verse 24, it says they're amazed. Verse 26 says they're exceedingly astonished, astonished beyond belief. Now, there are several Greek words that can be translated amazed. The most common is the Greek word existemi, means astounded or thrown into wonderment. That's not the word used here in verse 24. What's used here in verse 24 is the Greek word thombeo, and that means astonished slash terrified. The disciples were just confused by Jesus' observation. They were shook by it. And it tells us that Jesus' remark disturbed some fundamental belief that they had deeply held in their souls. What was that belief? Well, at that time, the culture believed that the rich and the powerful were blessed by God. 
Their line of thinking was essentially, well, how else did they amass such wealth and power if it didn't come from God? Moreover, not only did they believe that wealth was a blessing from God, but they connected it directly to the work and the talent of the people who had the wealth. That is, in their minds, in that day and culture, yeah, they were blessed by God and they earned that by dint of their hard work and special talent. And that's why the disciples responded with that question, well, then who can be saved? Right? Essentially, you know, if, if wealthy people who are clearly blessed by God and who earned it with their special talent, if they can't enter into the kingdom of God, well, what, what can the rest of us do? What can the rest of us do? Right? It challenged this cultural norm that they held. I think there might be something else going on in the hearts of the disciples here. See, the disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed in their minds that Jesus was going to one day overthrow the Romans and become king. And it's possible that they believed that as his followers, they would enjoy positions of wealth and power in his new kingdom. They were going to get something. Next week, in fact, we're going to study the request by James and John to sit at Jesus' right and left hand when he became king in his kingdom. They had an expectation that they would get something. So imagine you live in a culture that believes the wealthy are blessed by God, that wealth was earned through talents and hard work, and you're following someone that you believe is going to lead you into positions of wealth. You worked hard to earn that by following him. And this person you're following tells you, no, in fact, wealth is not a marker of God's blessings. It's an obstacle of entry into the kingdom. Shook. Entire perspective and worldview shaken. And Jesus responds to them with his third lesson about kingdom hearts. A kingdom mindset understands that entrance into the kingdom is only through Jesus. Not through our talents. Not through our possessions. Not through our works. Not through our power. Through Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus told them, with man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Impossible for man to accomplish this thing. Again, the disciples believed that entry into the kingdom was something that you earned. Whether it was wealth or power or social status or just leaving everything to follow someone, they believed you could earn entry into the kingdom of God. And Jesus told them that that line of thinking was backwards, that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And Jesus made the statement that entry into the kingdom was so incredibly high, in fact, impossibly high, for mankind to achieve it on its own. Impossible for us to fill every detail of the law. And only God can do that. And only God can bring us entry into the kingdom. Entrance into God's kingdom, in other words, salvation, isn't through our works. It's through Christ's work. Entrance into God's kingdom is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Not our wealth, not our power, not our social status, not how many ministries we've served in, not our church attendance, not whether our kids or parents were Christians, not how morally we live each day of our lives. None of that matters as it relates to kingdom entrance. 
Jesus, only Jesus is the key to the kingdom. And honestly, sometimes that's hard for us to understand. Seems problematic to us. That the things that we do in this world and give up in this world to follow Jesus have no immediate reward for us. Peter voices this concern. He says this, right? Rather than rejoicing in the fact that God can do the impossible, Peter said, well, see, we've left everything to follow you. Matthew adds an additional question. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Well, then what's in it for us? What then will we have? I speculated that maybe part of what the disciples was feeling was this belief that they were going to receive something in Jesus' new kingdom. And Peter gives voice to this in this question. Because here's the reality. Don't we sometimes believe that we've given up a lot for Jesus? Don't we? Don't we give up time every weekend to go to church? Don't we give up our hard-earned income when we either tithe or give? Don't we give up our leisure time to serve? Don't we avoid doing certain behaviors that we want to do that the culture says it's okay to do, but the Bible says it's not, so we don't? Haven't some of us endured strained or severed relationships with family and friends because of our decision to follow Jesus? And doesn't a small part of our hearts say, well, Jesus, we've made a lot of sacrifices for you. And doesn't that earn us something in this world? What then shall we have? Jesus' response to, our, to this is our last kingdom heart attitude. His response is this, that we should be eternity-minded. We should be eternity-minded. That is, when we consider what we lose in this world to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, we should have heart attitudes that focus not on what we get here, that the real wealth is not here, that real wealth is in what we receive in eternity. Jesus said this, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus had compassion on Peter, doesn't rebuke him for what is essentially a pretty selfish question. What do I get out of this? Instead, Jesus points out two things to him. First, told him that whatever we've given up for Jesus in the now, yeah, that is going to be returned to us in abundance in the now. Just not in the way that we think. I want to be absolutely crystal clear on this so, so there's no mistake. Hear this, beloved. This verse does not teach, does not teach that if we follow Jesus, God is going to materially bless us with wealth and good health. Not what this verse teaches. If you ever hear a preacher or church teach you that faith leads to health, wealth, and prosperity, run as far away as you can, as quickly as you can. That kind of teaching is called the prosperity gospel, and it's not gospel. It's idolatry disguised as faith. Our focus is not on our personal glory, but on God's glory. Not on what we can get out of this world, but on our satisfaction in Christ alone. 
Stay far, far away from any heretical teaching that says the rewards of faith are health, wealth, and prosperity. That teaching is from the devil. But here's what I believe Jesus meant here. It means if your family renounces you for following Jesus, which happens to almost every Muslim convert to Christianity, for example, well, you receive countless brothers and sisters in Christ in place of that family. If you leave friends that are bad influences on your faith, then you receive countless brothers and sisters in Christ who will fellowship with you. Church is your family. Church is your fellowship. If you leave your home or land to follow Jesus, you will find new places of belonging in a new faith community. Where basically all the corrupted things we, re we receive from our old dead lives, oh, they're replaced with new living things in Christ in the now. We also get persecutions. We should not skip over this phrase with persecutions. Because the life of faith is not easy. Isn't all roses. It's hard. We're promised persecution. If you and I authentically live out our faith according to how the Bible wants us to live, we should expect persecution. And this is increasingly true in the current culture and time that we're living in. There is going to be a cost for faithfully following Jesus and faithfully living out the Bible. Oh, but what we receive in eternity is so much greater than whatever persecution comes our way. And eternity is ultimately what Jesus points us to. Not only did Jesus tell Peter and us that whatever we give up in this world will be replaced by something better, Jesus reminded Peter and us that in the world to come, we'll receive real wealth, something far, far better. Jesus said, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's the anchor. We're often so short-sighted, looking for short-term rewards for our faithfulness and obedience. And Jesus reminds us that whenever we're tempted to look at what we give up or lose in this world to follow Jesus that the wealth that we'll have in the world to come is beyond comparison to anything in this world. We're going to have eternal life, an eternal home, eternal fellowship, eternal purpose, everything eternal. In Jesus, all the things of the world to come are so vastly superior to anything that we enjoy here in the world. We need to give up all of this for him. I have a lot of respect for actor Kirk Cameron. In our current culture, he is one of the most relentlessly mocked celebrities because of his political and religious views. And he is someone who understood the challenge given to the rich young ruler. Kirk began acting in television commercials at the age of nine. And his big break came four years later when he landed the role of Mike Seaver on Growing Pains, at that time one of the most popular television shows of its era. He starred in a Super Bowl commercial. In the late 80s and early 90s, he was a household name and one of the most famous, if not the most famous, teen heartthrob in Hollywood. At that time, he was making $50,000 a week with legions of young female fans. What more could a 17-year-old young man want than wealth and women? But Kirk fell in love with a young woman on the set of Growing Pains, who was still his wife. And he was an atheist at that time, and she was a devout Christian. 
And so Kirk began attending church with her and speaking to her father who began sharing the gospel to Kirk. And over the next few months, he began to read the Bible and read the book more than a carpenter that his girlfriend's father had given him to read. And after a discussion and reading the Bible, Kirk eventually accepted Christ as his savior and walked away from everything that Hollywood had to offer. Kirk wrote this. I was experiencing all the success the entertainment industry has to offer, but I knew there had to be something more. The Hollywood lifestyle was just overwhelming. A party here, an interview there, magazine and modeling shoots daily, your face everywhere, girls throwing themselves at you. And as great as it felt at the time, I still felt something missing and that I needed to change. And once I realized the emptiness of life apart from knowing God, when I embraced God and the truth of the gospel and the truth of the Bible, it was a no-brainer decision to see that that was a treasure that was infinitely more valuable than the Hollywood party life. I can honestly say that of everything I have, of everything I've experienced, nothing compares to the joy of knowing Christ. Because I've been given a glimpse of heaven and it outshines all of the rest. And family, this is the great truth that we can focus our hearts on, on eternity. That if we have Jesus, we have everything we need. We're reminded of this great truth that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Everything. In Jesus, we have everything and we need nothing else. Jesus is the answer to every longing in our hearts. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, and you don't have a relationship with him, please know that the kingdom of God exists for people, for you to come to Jesus that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to seek and save you, to bring you into his kingdom. What we celebrate five weeks from now at Easter is the redemption and reconciliation that we have through Jesus Christ. And if you don't yet have that recon reconciliation and redemption, please, I beg of you, I beg of you, don't leave today without talking to one of our pastors who would love to share with you how you can secure that eternity for you. The Bible says, for God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He is everything. May our lives reflect hearts that find our satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great truth. We thank you that you and you, you alone are everything. That we need nothing else if we have you. Thank you that you satisfy everything that we need. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't yet know you, I pray that you would tug at their heart. I pray that, that you would reach through whatever things are obstacles to hearing the truth. I pray that you would reach them even this day, that they would turn over their life to you. Father, continue to lead them to light. Father, for the rest of us who know you, I pray that you would give us the faith to look at our lives, to honestly examine anything in our lives that are hindrances and obstacles to our affection and our adoration of you. Take those things away, Lord. Give us the faith to walk away from them and to live wholeheartedly for you and you alone. In your name, amen.